Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Creedle. Today, I am joined by Jeremy Christensen, who is a lawyer and more recently an author, and more specifically, uh, an author of a religious memoir uh, called From the Susquehanna to the Tiber, a memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church. We're going to dive into this book today. I had the pleasure of reading it uh, last week and uh, this week. Uh, really fascinating stuff. And Jeremy, I'm excited to dive into your journey. Welcome to Creedle. Thank you so much, Zach. I'm happy to be here. Absolutely. No, I'm really excited to have you. Uh, I know we connected on Twitter a while back, mm -hmm. and I saw that you had this book uh, in the works at Ignatius. Uh, fans of the show will know that I love Ignatius Press. A lot of the book <laughs> reviews and uh, book author interviews that I do are from Ignatius, just always cranking out stuff. Whenever the Ignatius Press catalog comes in the mail, my wife just book bookmarks it for me because she knows yeah, I'm going to want to look at it. Uh, and this is the this is the latest. Now, this is just out as of like a week ago, right? This is pretty new. Yeah, it's 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 uh, brand new. Um, I think they've just started fulfilling orders here in the last week or so uh, on Amazon and uh, from Ignatius and also from, you know, I think other kind of major book retailers you can get it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's just out. So great. Well, Jeremy, you were born and raised in what the book jacket describes as the small Mormon town of Blanding, Utah. And then you went to, uh, I think, Utah State University uh, after serving a two-year mission in Argentina. And then to the, it's the, I mean, I've got to look at my notes here, the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah, Yeah, right? Yeah, I went to, I actually went to Southern Utah University, uh, not Utah State. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yes. For undergraduate, but uh, so Southern Utah University in Cedar City and then law school at the University of Utah. Yeah. And then after that, uh, have, you know, you find yourself in a legal career, but now have moved across the country and are in the greater DC area with your wife yep. and six children, right? Six children. Uh, number seven will be here. Uh, the due date is one month from today. So congratulations. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We were a bit behind you guys. We were expecting our fifth in March. Um, uh, but, uh, oh, congrats. yeah, maybe awesome. one day seven. Um, well, that's great, though. So now living in the D.C. area uh, as a Utah transplant, as someone who's from the West, I've spent a good a good deal of my time in the West. If, if I add up all the time that I've lived in Colorado, it actually is a plurality of my life. So it's the place that most mm -hmm. feels like home to me. I obviously don't live in Chicago in, in Colorado. Now I live in Chicago. Um, as someone who is from the West, do you find yourself missing it or do you really have, have you been a thriving transplant in the uh, you know Atlantic region? Yeah, you know, I think both. Uh I I am a Westerner, and it is very hard to rub that out. Um, like to, it, it just stays. It's it's hard to get rid of it. The East Coast has a different culture, a different vibe about it, and um, that just shows up in the way I am and the way the way I do things. But we have really loved it out here, and have you know we've been here a little over six years, and just enjoy it. I think part of it now, uh, as I'm sure we'll get to, you know, we have a really special, um, a Catholic community that we belong to. Our parish community is very strong. Uh, the greater DC area is a very interesting place to be as a Catholic, right? There's a very strong Catholic presence here and, um, a lot of, uh, you know, important, aspects of Catholicism happen in and around DC. The pro-life movement is very strong out here and those sorts of things. So, you know, we've, we really enjoy it. I suspect we'll be here for the long term. 
That's great. I'm glad that you've been, you, you know, you haven't been too sick for mountain or desert landscapes or anything like that. So no, yeah, we, I mean, we, we make it back, we make it back to visit family and, and such. And, uh, I certainly do miss, uh, seeing the stars, uh, you know, coming from a place as small as, as where I was born, you know, 3000 people, give or take very middle of nowhere. And, uh, I do miss the night sky as, uh, as I grew up looking at it, which looks nothing like the sky out here. So I should have done this before, but I did not actually look up where Blanding is. So I just did. And it's in basically the far Southeast corner of the state of Utah, way down there. Yeah. It's in the four corners area where Utah, Colorado, Arizona, and New Mexico all meet at 90 degree angles. Uh, it's about an hour and 15 minutes south of Moab, Utah, which is pretty beautiful, well known, right? Yeah. And about an hour and 15 minutes north of Monument Valley, also really, you know, well-known and beautiful place. So absolutely stunning country, um, a wonderful place to, to have grown up. And, and uh, you know, my parents, my parents still live there. I still have a brother who lives uh, just north of Blanding. So nice. Well, if we can, without spoiling the book, obviously, because people need to go buy the book. I mean, I think the title of the book gives away the conclusion. You did, in fact, you know, cross the Tiber. You did convert. <laughs> but can you can you give a brief sketch of your journey, starting probably from? I mean, we we can we could probably even just caveat sort of you had you had a rebellious youth, and you go into that in sure. in great detail in the book, which I think is very helpful. Uh, we don't need to do that for this interview, I don't think. But if you could maybe start from sort of your fervent. Uh, your fervent faith uh, when you had this sort of, I don't know, we might call it a conversion or a reconversion yeah. experience in, in high school, all the way through where you find yourself today. Just maybe, you know, a five minute summary of that journey. Yeah, sure. So uh, I, you know, I had something like a reversion or a conversion to to my Mormon faith, uh, to the, you know, the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that I've been raised in. My parents are very devout, good Mormons, um, and uh, raised, you know, a very devout family. And I really kind of experienced a, a strong conversion to the LDS faith right around the time that I had to make a decision about whether I was going to serve a two-year mission. So as, you know, a lot of people know, you, know, you see missionaries out there on the street with the white shirt and the, and the you know, the black name tag and a tie and all. And I knew that was sort of coming up and it was right around that time that I, you know, experienced a, a conversion, uh, as you might call it. And it was really powerful. It was really important and really set the trajectory of my life in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I think sort of building from that, a lot of people, experience a, a mission they, you know you go for two years and it becomes very formative and, and I would say that is definitely the case for me certainly some people have a negative experience but I, I couldn't I couldn't call my mission a negative experience at all it was extremely formative and faith promoting in the sense that you know when you go around and you spend all day every day uh, with half a day off a week, randomly approaching strangers everywhere you go on the bus down the street knocking on people's doors trying to preach to them this message uh you know it is it is uh it has an impact on you and 
the LDS church is pretty open. There's sort of a saying, they'll say, you know, the most important convert on your mission is you. And it, it really, you know, you're out there, you're young, 19 years old. When, when I went, uh, I went to Buenos Aires, Argentina, and I was in and around the capital city and, and kind of the major metropolitan area to the north. And then I also spent nine months in the Patagonia, the very southern tip of the country, which was part of our mission for administrative purposes. It was just easier to get down there, uh, given where the domestic airport was. And, you know, you, you're there with a companion. You spend all your time with them. You're just sort of preaching and you're testifying. You're, you're giving people this testimony uh, that in the Mormon context is, is, is sort of really fundamental to understand that in this context, the Mormon church teaches essentially that you can know that the truth claims that the LDS church makes are true, that the Book of Mormon is, is you know, a scripture and that Joseph Smith was really called as a prophet of God by asking God and God is going to give a uh, sort of manifestation to you that you feel in your heart is true. And it's a very powerful experience. We can get into that, you know, uh, of sort of what I make of that now uh, a bit later, but, you know, you, you have this experience and, and then you, within the framework of Mormonism, have a kind of really certain knowledge um, uh, that's it's hard to tell people how much you believe it. And, you, you know, I will frequently say you, you don't believe Mormonism. You know, it's true. There's a level of certainty about it that it that is, again, hard to communicate to people who who haven't grown up in that context and going about every every day telling thousands of people ultimately. Right. By the time you finish that, I know that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only true church on earth that's guided today by a living prophet, that Joseph Smith was called as a prophet to restore Christ's true church to earth, that the Book of Mormon is true, it will change your life. You know, doing this for, for two years really reinforces that. And interpreting the experiences that you have on your mission uh, as God sort of perpetually guiding you all the time also has a big influence. and. This idea that you get a testimony from God is not just limited to gaining, you know, knowledge about the church's fundamental claims. The LDS church conceives of itself as being built on continuing revelation, that God is continually speaking to uh, not just the, the leaders of the LDS church, but but to everyone who's a member of the church within their sphere to to guide them. Now, at some level, that probably sounds you know, vaguely correct and accurate uh, that, you know, God guides us. But within the context of Mormonism, uh, it's really specific. And kind of this idea, the same sort of set of feelings that one has that are associated with, with receiving a testimony are the same sorts of things that members of the church seek out that would say, you know, I should do this. I should marry that person. I should go to this university. Uh, and as a missionary, like I should turn down that street right there and go knock on the doors on that street. It's, it's this, you know, very deep sense of being at times minutely guided by God in everything that you do. And, and this experience is kind of, you know, built up because these events sometimes, you know, cash out, but that sometimes you, 
felt like you should go down this or that street and you met someone and it, you know, you end up talking with them and it's great. And, and if things go south, well, well, it wasn't their time. Their time will come later. But if things work out, it's this sort of reinforcing mechanism of like, God gave me a revelation and told me to go there. And like this person was prepared to receive the truth and got baptized, you know? So, so like you, a con confirmation bias at work, basically. Yeah, definitely, out, so definitely yeah. In, a, in a really powerful way. And, and so this is sort of occurring all the time. And, you know, by the time you leave a, a mission, you're, you know, a lot of people are very, very, very convinced. Um, and I certainly was, and I was happy. I, I, it wasn't like I was, you know, um, like it was destructive, right? I, I think it, most people will concede, you know, Mormonism teaches a pretty clean and healthy life and, and, um, has some really good basic values and, and family values and those sorts of things that are, that are good, uh, as far as they go. Um, you know, I returned home from my mission in 2008 and, you know, believing the church's teachings about marriage and family, you know, I met my wife at a young adult event shortly after I got home. And we started dating pretty quickly and uh, we got engaged really quickly. We were married. We met in February uh, of 2008. We were married September 6th, 2008. Wow. Uh, in the Los Angeles, California temple. It's there on Santa Monica Boulevard. My wife's from Southern California. And uh, we set about living, you know, a, a happy Mormon life. We had kids uh, right off the bat. We had kids immediately. And, you know, um, Mormonism relies really heavily on the participation of ordinary rank and file members. So congregations are not led by a paid priest. It's the bishop of a ward. So a ward would be maybe something like a parish. Uh, and the bishop, like the pastor, it's just, it could be your name. My dad was a bishop when I was young. Um, you know, it could be your plumber. It could be whomever. And, um, and so, so positions in the Sunday school and these sorts of things are, are filled voluntarily. You're called, the bishop will call you in and say, you know, I felt impressed by the Holy Spirit to, to, to extend you a calling to be the, the nursery teacher, right? Like to watch over the, the young ones, you know, during when, when all the grownups are, are at Sunday school during the the set of meetings that LDS people go to on Sundays. And, uh, and so, you know, we were, we were both heavily involved and, and that was kind of the example my parents had set, uh, for, for me and same with my wife. I served in a number of leadership positions from, from pretty young. Um, I served in a bunch of leadership positions as a missionary up to the point of kind of the highest one that you can have as a missionary, which is called the assistant to the president. Uh, and when I got back, you know, I served in a bishopric, which is like the bishop and he has two counselors. And so I, I helped run a, a ward when I was like 22 and was going to school, doing undergraduate, all of this, all of this is going on and, and life is, you know, pretty well happy. It's stressful. Um, we're having children and, uh, and just living life. And I would say that while in retrospect, I can occasionally identify maybe a little fissure here or, or a crack there, certainly nothing 
seemed that way to me at the time with respect to my faith. And it wasn't, it wasn't really until um, law school that those things started to, to really come out. And part of that, you know, could be uh, because of the nature of law school, right? It, it's um, a lot of time spent thinking very critically about everything, about, you know, every argument that, you know, you read a, a case and, and every argument that gets put forward, you spend a lot of time dissecting it and, and thinking about what assumptions underlie that argument and testing those assumptions. And, and you know, you get a, a fair amount of skepticism from, from law school. And there are sort of a couple of things that happen at this time. I kind of had a, a bit of a personal spiritual crisis um, that didn't really have anything to do with, you know, uh, Joseph Smith or learning more about Mormonism or anything. It was just had, you know, I was under a lot of stress. I was serving in an elders quorum presidency. I was a law student. Um, I was overly ambitious as a law student, I think. And, you know, there's a lot of stress going on. And a leader in the church had given me a blessing, which is sort of, you know, they lay hands on you and, and pronounce what's supposed to be kind of like a prophetic blessing from God. And some real specific things got said to me that that seemed right, that seemed just the same, seemed right, just like I had a testimony, you know, just like anything else I had felt that really felt right. And that just did not happen. Um, and it caused a lot of cognitive dissonance, you know, really, really strong. I had a bout of depression at that time. And so, so you know, in that sense, I'm sort of vulnerable um, with respect to with respect to all that going on and, and feeling a little bit disappointed in God, like, why, why did you kind of have this happen to me? This is difficult to understand. And at the same time, this is so, you know, from 2011 to 2014 is when I'm in law school. There's a lot going on in the world of Mormonism at that time. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty important. The internet has become unavoidable for the LDS church at, at this point, you know, 20, 30 years ago and more, if you wanted to know about the early history of the LDS church, you had to go to a library somewhere and check out an obscure book. It's not like Mormon history, as you know, the topic du jour or, or on the New York Times bestseller list or something. It's, it's you know, it's a kind of a niche area. And um, but with the rise of the Internet, this information is becoming very widely available to people. and. I'm in Salt Lake City, which is kind of a curious place to be. The, the presence of the church there is hard to avoid. It's hard to avoid in conversations with people. And it's hard to avoid in an intellectual atmosphere like law school, uh, where some contingent of the student body are Mormon and some contingent aren't. And some everyone has very strong feelings about the LDS church. And, uh, you know, you start to started to hear at this time about there were kind of large numbers of people resigning from the church enough that it was kind of making news. Uh, there were some leaders of the church discussing this. There was talk about, you know, how historical and doctrinal issues were, were driving some people out of the church. There were other, you know, there were some high profile excommunications that happened. Uh, a, a fellow named John DeLynn who has a really popular podcast called Mormon Stories was excommunicated 
um, in a pretty high profile way. I think the New York Times wrote an article about it. There was another, a, a woman named Kate Kelly, who was part of a, a feminist movement pushing for uh, women's ordination in the LDS church. She was excommunicated. It was also very kind of national news. And all of these things are going on. And, and I'm starting to meet people in my spheres who kind of hold, who are faithful Mormons in terms of, you know, going to church and everything, but they kind of like hold unorthodox views about Mormonism. And that kind of started me down the path of all of this is going on and me starting to read a little bit of, of these materials. You know, I knew some things, but not the church does a pretty good job or did a pretty good job of warding members off from, from digging too deep, at least prior to that time. And, you know, I had a moment at, at some point where this confluence of factors, I let myself ask, what if it's not true? And in a serious way, and I think it's easy for people to kind of abstractly posit, you know, allowing themselves to think something isn't true or to think a particular thing. But I had a real moment where I said, I'm open to the idea that maybe it's not true. What if it's not? What would that mean for me? And wouldn't I want to know? Can we can we pause here and unpack that a little bit? So up to this point, you 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 had the reversion in high school, end of high school, whatever you do the two years in Argentina, mm -hmm. really convinced of the truth of it because you have this this deep conviction you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's true. And it's not simply because you believe the words you read in the book, it's because you have this this inner conviction, like you said, that it's true. Come back, uh, meet your wife, marry your wife, um, college, law school. It's there that you start learning how to construct an argument and perhaps deconstruct an argument, learning how to investigate mm -hmm. things and apply logical uh yeah. logical principles to truth claims and at the same time you start seeing the church sort of um what would be the what, what's what's a defensive term i'm looking for i don't know uh batten down the hatches or um i don't know fill yeah, up the moat, a whatever. little bit of damage control a little bit of reckoning yeah. of, of trying to get out front in terms of of you know historical issues and issues about the church's doctrine that are leading some people out of the church and mm -hmm. And they kind of make a move to get out ahead of it, um, in particular with the publication of a series of official essays that they post on their website a little, not surreptitiously, but certainly not with a lot of fanfare. But but they start posting essays that concede as true things that were a little shocking to hear the church say wow. are true. Things that you heard rumors about this kind of stuff as a kid or whatever or in high school. but there's a, a bit of a a sense of like, well, those are anti-Mormon lies, you know, um, right? You know, or you don't, you know. I I had heard, or you sort of know, yeah, Joseph Smith was maybe involved in some kind of treasure digging at some point, but like, it was some youthful indiscretion, and that's kind of it. To turn to then see an essay that's like, you know, Joseph Smith and his family believed extensively in the folk magic and occult yeah. that pervaded their yeah. time period and were, were pretty serious practitioners of it. Um, and a lot of the concessions, they, it's just sort of like, whoa, but these are the things that, you know, people 
told me right. were. At least these were the lies like, I heard as a kid, and now exactly. the church is conceding them to presumably get out ahead of them or whatever. Yeah. So, so you're seeing all this and you, as you just described, you've, you've arrived at a place where you have allowed yourself to really question, is this true? And be open to the answer, right? Yeah. If we can, if we can peel back the onion on that specific thing a little bit, because your, your book was actually helpful for me, especially in understanding the importance of this, um, this like witness or this testimony, this moment where, um, in the, in the eyes of the Mormon, and by the way, you, you you say this at the beginning as well. When I say Mormon, I'm obviously not being pejorative. I'm just yeah. sort of using the the common term. I mean, um, LDS member uh, could be used interchangeably. I think now the term Mormon has sort of fallen out of favor, as you say in the beginning of your book, but it wasn't always that way. Yeah, so, yeah. It's it's th There's been a push in the last couple of years to adopt sort of a preferred nomenclature, but it's it's cumbersome to say members of the Church of Jesus yeah, Christ of Latter-day Saints. Exactly, uh, exactly. So people. suffice it to say, we are not being pejorative in saying yeah. that, uh, certainly. Um, but uh, it was helpful to me to read that because I had this experience with my wife, this encounter with a couple of Mormon missionaries in our hometown earlier this year. Mm -hmm. They had run into my wife outside the library. Uh, my wife had our our four kids with her and you know they were like, oh, hello, you know, very pleasant. My wife got her number. Um, wanted to get together for dinner or, or I think wanted to get together to just talk with us. And so we invited them to our home for dinner and proceeded to try to share with them about our Catholic faith and why we believe what we believe. And they share with them about their Mormon faith. And when, when they couldn't refute anything that I was saying, logically, they came back to, they, they gave us a copy of, uh, the, the Mormon Bible and they came back to, you just have to read it for yourself and ask and, God and, and ask tell God. you that it's true. Exactly. And I mean, this obviously you've, you've probably said that line a lot as a missionary, but, but to them, that was the ultimate, the ultimate signal of its truth or falsehood is that when they had read this, God had told them it was true. Yep. And she had, she said, I have no other way to describe it other than that is no, I have this core conviction that it is true. And at the time I just thought that's kind of a weird, um, strange missionary tactic. And I don't know how effective that is. I read your book and I was like, oh, that's, that's it. Like that's, that's part of the Mormon sort of epistemology is this, yes. this witness of the Holy Spirit. So, so talk to me a little bit more about that. Yeah, it, it really is. It, th that's something I think really came out as I was writing, as I was writing the book, um, trying to figure out, you know, when you leave, there can be a tendency for certain people. And there were certain people in my life who will ask, did you ever really believe, did you ever really have a testimony? And I was just shocked that someone could ask me that because I believed so much. I just can't even to this day communicate to anybody else how much I knew it was true. And so, you know, you, you start to go back and think about this concept. And to me, that emerged as kind of one, it's definitely one of the major themes of the, of the memoir that, that, that is kind of the fundamental building block of Mormonism is the idea that there are certain truths that primarily being the truthfulness of the claims of Mormonism, of its theological claims that are to be known in a special way, in a way that's different. That's not really uh, uh, known through our reason, but is known through a feeling and this feeling is described in Mormon scripture in the Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of one of the sets of Mormon scripture, uh, you know, that says that to, uh, when you pray that, that God will 
cause your bosom to burn, that you'll feel that it is right within you. And um, you're taught, you know, from very young that, that that's what you're looking for, that you are looking for some kind of experience that makes you feel inside, you know, that things are right and that you feel um, uh, that it's true. And the way that I describe it, the best I can is to say it's sort of a confluence of two things at the same time. One, some set of abstract proposition in the mind. Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. At the same time, as this overwhelming emotional sense of well-being. And I talk about in the book that it, it's not something that is you, you know, uniquely felt by members of the LDS church. You felt it. Uh, um, I think every, every human being alive has felt it. And, and, and uh, examples are pretty easy to come by that when you watch a movie and you see somebody do something heroic and you just have that feeling, you choke up uh, and, and you just feel good and right with the world, um, that, that's really the, the sense that is being communicated. But it's that sense when it coincides with, you know, you're you're reading the Book of Mormon. And for me, you know, I, I was in a kind of a really distressed time. I had a lot of tough questions and I opened the Book of Mormon uh, one night and I read some passages and they just said, I just read them and they just said exactly what I needed to hear. They It just, it was like click. And I just, I you know, I burst into tears. I just had this overwhelming emotional sense of well-being. And and there are many experiences like that through the life of someone who's LDS, but you know my own view and theory of this is that that uh it's because we're taught that that's the way that you figure out these fundamental truth claims. And an interesting part about it is you know I I'm not I'm not a expert on philosophy or anything um but but it does it does resonate sort of strangely with postmodernism. Um, and, you know, there are some, I think I, I cite these in the book, but there are some recent talks by one of the high leaders of the LDS church who says, you know, no one can disprove your testimony. Yeah. And, and it's a little ironic because I don't think, you know, the LDS church uh, would ever sort of intentionally, uh, you know, link arms with postmodernism or postmodern thought. But this idea that the subjective experience is this undeniable experience and itself defines truth, mm -hmm. right, um, is, is, is very, very close to what is going on there. And, and that, you know, speaks to why it's, it can be kind of impenetrable to logical arguments. And I, on top of that, you know, people are taught that, you know, logic is one thing, but like if your logic is telling you that the Book of Mormon's not true or that Joseph Smith's not a prophet, then you disregard that and you yeah. go with what you know God has has told you. And it, it's not that it's um, you know, heresies have something true about them, which is what makes them appealing. And and I think that you know there is there is truth to to. The fact that there are things, uh, for instance, that are supra rational. So one would say that the inner life of God and the Holy Trinity is not something we can know through reason. Uh, it's something that God has to reveal to us. Right. 
and is still beyond our comprehension. But the way that Catholic teaching thinks about this is, well, of course, the doctrine itself is logically coherent. Um, and but but, you know, Mormonism posits that there are things special, you know, theological truths that God reveals directly to us through our emotions that are true, notwithstanding reason, contrary to reason. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think that's sort of a, a, a big difference between those two approaches. Yeah. I think your, um, your point about postmodernism is a really important one here, um, behind me on the bookshelf. One of the, one of the books I have there is, um, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he, uh, in, in, um, in a great ingenious way, just illustrates how, um, in our modern, in our, in our postmodern world, the self has become the only reference point for identity mm-hmm. and for all of reality. And so that's why we have this language of, you know, your truth in our language. Like there's, sure. you know, prior, prior to, prior to 1950, your truth didn't really mean anything to right. anybody. But now people say your truth and they recognize, oh, that's something that's true for you, even if it's not true for me. And that's just really an absurd idea that's just completely postmodern because it is centered on this idea as idea of people sort of being their own reference points. Yeah. Um, and so your point is interesting because what I hear you saying is that actually there is this there, there's this at least parallel to sort of postmodern epistemology in uh, in holding on to the Mormon faith, and you emerge from your Mormon faith then sort of I guess rejecting well you certainly rejected the Mormon faith, but did you also reject that postmodern idea? And the reason I ask this is because as I was reading your your um, memoir, what I expected to read in the memoir was that you were Mormon. And while you were Mormon, you started to encounter ideas of uh, ideas from the Catholic Church and started to read Catholic theology. And eventually you, you decided, oh, the Catholic stuff is true. The right. Mormon stuff is not. I'm going to become Catholic. What I actually read uh, is you basically abandoning Mormonism, realizing this is not true. Um, and then there's, there's this delay. There's this gap period where you're not really sure how to identify. You start sort of, I don't know, thinking about like re- reformed Mormonism, I think oh. it's called, or... Um, you start sort of dabbling in those waters, and eventually you land in Catholic waters. But um, I was surprised to see that sequence of events. And my question for you here is: Did you did you sort of abandon the postmodern stuff then? Um, and maybe that's why uh, your story was not like so many others that I hear, even from my friends who are uh, ex evangelicals. I obviously yeah. didn't grow up Mormon, so most of my childhood friends were evangelical Christians, mm-hmm. and so many of them, Jeremy, so many of them even today have abandoned their evangelical growing up uh, and have embraced this sort of like, I don't know, this, uh, you know, moral therapeutic deism maybe, or some sort of universalism because they, they've rejected key tenets of their evangelicalism and sort of have abandoned, uh, you know, thrown out the baby with the bathwater. I don't, I don't love that expression, but you know what I mean, right? Like they just sort of, they throw it all away. So how did you get to this point where you didn't throw all of religion away? You didn't find yourself just sort of like a disgruntled agnostic, um, universalist or something. Uh, and instead you found yourself open to Catholicism. Yeah. So that's, um, that's a pretty wild story of how it all happens, or at least bewildering to me. So I I do want to make one point of clarification you know, this Mormon view of epistemology uh, certainly predates the rise of postmodernism. I just think yeah. it's a very close parallel. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think that 
what I what I left out of Mormonism, my my big kind of lesson <laughs> was it just doesn't matter how I feel about anything. How I feel about things is not the guide of whether it's right or wrong or true or false. That that was sort of my big lesson. It just doesn't matter. People can feel all kinds of things about all kinds of things. <laughs> and yeah. it just it does not have any bearing on it because there were things I felt were felt so strongly were correct. And it was based on feeling that were not, you know, I, I spent all this time doing reading about Mormonism and Mormon history and came to say, you know, these, these claims are just not tenable. Um, you know, there, there is a, there are a number of good, reasonable explanations of the evidence of who Joseph Smith was, what he was doing, what the Book of Mormon is, um, but none of them are the narrative that served as a precursor for me to have a testimony in the first place. And once yeah. one is familiar with them, I don't think necessarily that one would ever get that feeling. For instance, just as an example, and I, I promise I'll circle back to the the question of, of kind of the interregnum of how I make it from leaving Mormonism and, and coming to Catholicism that, you know, it's, it's uh, people, um, you know, you, you, uh, you get to this point where like, if you heard, if you, if you heard, you're just an ordinary person, you didn't, weren't raised in the LDS church. If you heard that Joseph Smith received a revelation that he uh, was supposed to marry a whole bunch of other women, including women already married to other men, including uh, some underage women. It, that's all you probably have to hear <laughs> for you to make up your mind, right? Yeah. Or if you were to say, yeah, you know, Joseph Smith, um, well, he had these golden plates that he found. An angel showed him where they were. He buried them in the ground and, and Joseph Smith gets them out. Some people claim that they got to see them, but you know, the angel took them away. So no one gets to see them anymore. They're gone. Most people, it doesn't take much for them to be like, well, that's not true. Yeah. Um, right. But, but that's not the story necessarily of how it's kind of crafted and told. And so those, those um, presuppositions and, and that kind of narrative that the LDS church taught served as a precursor for me to think, well, yeah, this story could be true. And, and then you have this experience. So then you unpack all of that and you you learn all of it and that all falls apart. And, you know, why did I not stop like believing in God? I can only say it's by God's grace. I really don't have much of a, a great explanation for it. Mm -hmm. um, I still believed, but but it was very identifiable as something like moral uh, therapeutic deism, which I think yeah. just speaks to the extent to which that kind of belief has infiltrated every religion in America, uh, Mormonism, Catholicism, evangelical Protestantism, what have you, that, you know, I was kind of like, look, you know, I just don't know. I still think God's there and I experienced God through Mormonism and I don't really know what to make exactly of the person of Jesus. Uh, and, you know, am I in any position to say that, that 
that's the only way to, you know, go to heaven. No way. And I'm just going to live and let live. And that's fine with me. And I will kind of, you know, craft my own set of beliefs. Uh, I'll, I'll make, a, you know, kind of a, a cafeteria set of beliefs. And, and part of that was because while I didn't believe in Mormonism anymore, you know, I was married. I had four children. Uh, my wife was very, very much still Mormon. Um, and that was very, you know, difficult for, for her to, to deal with that. And we had children and I was the one reneging on, you know, the deal here. Uh, we, our faith was incredibly important to us. And, you know, I felt obligated morally to just keep going to church to help, you know, corral the kids essentially. Right. She's got four little ones and that's, that's not easy. LDS sure, church at the yeah. time was a three hour block of meetings. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I think it's now down to two, but it was three at the time. And, you know, it's, it's a big, big ordeal. So I was still going every week, but wherever we would go when we moved from Salt Lake to uh, Las Vegas, we lived in Las Vegas for, for a little bit, you know, we would move places and I would just tell the Bishop, like, look, I don't believe any of this. Um, I'm perfectly happy to even have a calling if you want. Like I was like a Cub Scout leader, you know, just give me something that I don't have to tell people that I think Joseph Smith's a prophet or anything like that. And if you feel comfortable with that, I'm comfortable with that. And, you know, this is my culture and you all are my people and that's fine. And so I was still, you know, in the Mormon world very much. And but just like, I don't believe any of this, not a bit of it. And I had told my family, my parents, I told people, like, I don't believe this anymore. I'm, I'm here. Can, to I, can I ask yeah. how family reacted when you had told them that, you know, especially, especially those closest to you, your parents, your yeah. siblings, your wife, obviously, like, was that, was that, were those really hard conversations? Did they say, oh, we saw this coming? Um, or was it a total shocker to everyone? How did that, how did that play out? Total shocker to everyone. Uh, it was not something I really wanted to talk about with people leading up to it. There are yeah. a lot of fears you feel as in sure. that position that you just are really unsure about things. And it was incredibly painful and difficult for my wife. It was very painful for my parents, uh, and for siblings. And I will just say lots of us said things that we regret and sure. thank God we have repaired those good, uh, good. kinds of things at this point. But you know, it's, I don't, I don't blame anyone. Certainly that's, it's a very high emotional thing that can feel like it's not just that I'm rejecting the faith. I'm rejecting you because Absolutely. I grew up in a family that just our faith is, is part of our family. It is part of us. And so, you know, that is, um, that was a, a difficult, a difficult thing for people and took time to heal. And in some sense is still healing, but it's in a much better place now. Good. And, I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And, and like I, like uh, you had noted, I kind of experimented with thinking through other ways of understanding Mormonism. You know, there are a lot of people who have a more kind of liberalized idea about Mormonism. There are people now who, who believe the Book of Mormon is just, they say, ah, it's just a big piece of pseudo epigrapha. And it could still be scripture because, you know, they borrowed heavily from like, higher criticism of the Bible and we'll say, well, you know, such and such a pseudopigrapha, but it's scripture. So I, I can say that the book of Mormon is still scripture, even though it's pseudopigrapha, like Joseph Smith yeah. authored it. 
There weren't really Nephites or Lamanites. None of that stuff is historically real, but that's not the point, right? The point is kind of the deeper, more spiritualized sense of things. And um, I, I, you know, I worked at that for a little while, but it just, it just is really difficult. It's a really difficult environment to be in. It's very difficult to go to church and hear people say things that you know are demonstrably false and to have in particular to have your children hearing those things and to be kind of muzzled. It's a very difficult position to be in. And, you know, it just wasn't, wasn't working. I was very unhappy. Um, I'd started, started, you know, practicing law out here in DC. It's a very stressful job. Um, and I was just, you know, I was very successful at work, uh, but found that I was unhappy. And my relationship with my wife was, um, good in the sense of like, we were never in any serious, you know, trouble. Uh, divorce was just never a thing that was ever on our radars ever. Um, but you know, things were tough, uh, sure, and, yeah. and there could be conflict sometimes. And, um, and at some point, you know, I started, uh, I stumble across some of the writings of John Henry Newman. And I was reading about, you know, in his, um, his essay on development, uh, development of Christian doctrine, I read just the first part and didn't understand it very well and had kind of the wrong view of it at first, uh, and wasn't thinking about Catholicism. It just was Catholicism was not sure. on my radar. I was thinking more of like, how could I construct a coherent Mormonism that rejects components of its past? And I saw this thing about him like writing about development and just the notion of development kind of entered my radar. And I was kind of trying to apply that to Mormonism. And again, it just wasn't working because it involved contradiction. It just, it involved yes. saying like, I just, you have to repudiate. You have to say that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but he erred in, you know, his revelation on polygamy, for instance, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. that was just wrong. And that's obviously a problem and not, not a very, Sure foundation, you know, intellectually or a as church. a matter of faith to kind of rest your belief in. And at some point I come across, it's still pretty bit of a mystery to me how I hear about the apostolic fathers. I hear that there's, a, you know, this group, I never heard of them before and was like, oh, that's interesting. I, you know, a, a group of kind of the, the earliest non-New Testament or post-New Testament Christian writings. I wonder what that's about. That'd be interesting to kind of look at. And I literally had a moment of like, I, I could pick some few things out of there that I want to believe <laughs> and I maybe add that to my repertoire. Or if not, you know, I won't. And I wound up there. They're right here um, above me. I was wondering if that was the set. I was looking at that. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that's the set. Because that's the eBay. You got it on eBay for like 236 bucks. I right? got it on eBay for, yeah. for just over $200, which if you, Amazing. Go, if you go look at what these cost now, uh, I sometimes I'll say that alone is is proof of you know God's oh, providence seriously. in this. Yeah, world. that was the Holy Spirit right there, <laughs> paving the way. So, um, and I I got them and I said you know I don't really care. I like to have a lot of you know I got a lot of books on my shelf. I said I don't really care what happened after that. They're a nice set of books and you know I'm not just they're all here. It's a decent enough price, so I'll buy them. And I wanted to read the Apostolic Fathers. And I sat down and I started to read that first volume 
with no commentaries, no anything. And again, Catholicism was not not really on the radar in any sense. I mean, it had started to creep into the radar. You know, I had a book from Newman and some things like that. But I I start reading this and uh, and just bit by bit was saw something I hadn't expected. I had fully expected to see something that in my own judgment was subject to a lot of debate about what these people are talking about or, or, or what religion this is that these people belong to. And that's not what I found. I, I started to very quickly have a strong sense that these people were Catholic. And while I didn't see kind of a really like exact one for one correlation on every Catholic belief I knew about, or, you know, there was, you certainly, you know, not everything the father said is, um, is correct. Sure. Uh, but I, I just had this very growing sense uh, that the Catholic Church is the historical inheritor of whatever this is. And it wasn't even a position of like, I believe that the Catholic Church is like what God wants me to do or is instituted by God even. It was simply that it strikes me that Christianity is a thing and it's this thing and it's these beliefs that these people hold. One of one, one of them in particular that, you know, that struck me was the belief in the real presence. It mm -hmm. just was, seemed very, very obvious to me from reading these things that these people believe something crazy, believe something totally nutso to me, which was that the Eucharist is you know, the body and blood of Jesus. And that one in particular, you know, was, was something like, I thought, how, how do I call myself a Christian or how do I say, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the same things that, that the people who were the earliest people, the people who died in some of these really you know, horrific martyrdoms yeah. and such, how do I identify in any sense with these people if I don't believe this thing? And mm -hmm. it just didn't make sense to me that I, that I could not believe that thing. And it's not that I did believe that early on, but, but it, these things just started to, to kind of compound. And certainly by the time I had read all the way through chronologically, like all the documents up through, um, you know, near the end of the second century with St. Irenaeus's against heresies, I had become, you know, strongly suspicious, uh, that, Catholicism might be correct. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. Yeah. And at that point started to really sort of study and think about Catholicism as an option. Now I, I got the sense in your book that there's this, um, well, there's this, this anti-intellectualism in Mormonism. And I don't mean that, that Mormons don't like to read books or don't like to think. What I mean is that there's a fear on the part of the Mormon church and on the part of some Mormons that if you, if you scratch too deeply, if you dig too deeply yeah. on the claims, you won't like what you find and the church might crumble for it. Um, I think you know, one of the beautiful things about being Catholic is that we don't have to be afraid of any question. There's no, yeah. there's no question that, you know, I tell people this, right? There's no question you will think of that someone has not already thought of and that and thought about a lot. Not, <laughs> yeah. And that a Catholic has not already responded to. So it's a, it's a great comfort to a Catholic apologist 
that when you are arguing and someone makes what you think is a really good point that you haven't thought of before, there's an answer for it. You just have to go go find it. Yeah. Um, and so even when my kids ask really good questions, uh, and they do, I mean, the other day my my um, uh, my seven year old asked, um, "Daddy, did Jesus?" know he was God even when he was a little baby mm-hmm. right and that's a pretty it's a pretty it's a big question uh, that goes to a lot of it goes to a lot of uh, things that are pretty central to our faith um, uh, you know and how do we conceive of the incarnation and what implications does that have for Jesus and his divine knowledge and what does that say about you know the 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 fact that he is um, fully man and fully God how does right. that fit into play so these are complicated questions, but uh, I encourage my kids to ask these questions. Yeah. I, I encourage them to play stump the teacher if they want to, because these are these are good questions. And if we truly try to find the answers, there are good answers that there that are out there. So, did you find that in your study of of the fathers when you were reading the Apostolic Fathers? Did, and if so, did you find that encouraging? Um, that it's really it's sort of the opposite mentality. I mean, these guys are obviously incredibly smart writers who are engaging with some of the foremost pagan minds of their day, right. writing against heresies or uh, Justin Martyr's philosophical dialogues, for example. I mean, and there's and there's rich stuff there, and they are not afraid. They're not afraid to go deep. Yeah, I, I think certainly in the fathers, you know, things that I like along those lines that kind of um, resonated with me early. You know, I. I read some stuff that was like out of chronological order. You know, I, I read parts of the ecumenical councils. I read a lot of Eusebius um, and like there, like with respect to the canon and respect to authorship and those sorts of things in the new Testament. Yeah. Uh, it was just a, however one comes out on any of these questions and I'm not really going to opine on that. Uh, it was just a, like a f- breath of fresh air that Eusebius is, you know, talking He's like, well, you know, <laughs> Some people are really skeptical about Second Peter, and some people totally reject, you know, James or whatever. Yep. And uh, nobody's really sure who wrote Hebrews. And some people say it's Barnabas. Some people say it's Paul. You know, and it was it was sort of like I didn't know <laughs> the people were thinking about this. Or yes, or you read Augustine, right? And Augustine's like, you know, Christians should really refrain from making arguments about the meaning, the literal meanings of, of Genesis, they should be very cautious about doing some of these things. Um, and so certainly in the fathers, but more as I, as I read the fathers and I started to think, um, there might be something to Catholicism. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I started watching everything I could listening to everything I could. And, and I, I listened, I watched, uh, then, Father Robert Barron, now Bishop Robert yes. Barron's Catholicism yep. series from, you know, a decade or so ago, a beautiful, beautiful series. And in there, you know, starting to get introduced um, to, uh, to, to two things, the intellectual tradition of the church and beauty mm-hmm. uh, and the mystery of Catholicism. And on the intellectual side, you know, Thomas Aquinas and John Henry Newman were really big, I think, influences on me in that. And, you know, again, you want to say, you know, Catholicism is not afraid of the hardest questions, just to open the Summa to the first part. Once once St. Thomas tells us, you know, that, that theology is worth talking about, and you get past that question, you get to these questions about God. And like the first question is, you know, it would seem that there is no God. Right. He offers exactly. up the two most enduring objections to the existence of God that still 
persists with us today, that being the problem of evil, and the second being that God is not necessary to explain the existence of things. Yeah. And and then, you know, obviously he uses uh, Augustine's argument to refute the first and and the famous five ways on the second. But, uh, you know, that really resonated with me and it really resonated with me to move from, you know, I had always learned about the nature of God as, you know, heavenly father in the idea of, of Mormonism is a, is a man. He's an exalted man who used to not be God and then became God through, you know, following the principles that Mormonism teaches. And we're made in the image of God because we have fingers and toes and eyes and ears. And that that's what that means. And to I move, didn't realize that. Wow. To move from that to uh, the perennial Christian teaching on what it means to be made in the image of God, immensely evident in the fathers, right? And in all of the yes. early Christology, the Logos Christology of Justin Martyr and, and the like, uh, to know that we are made in the image of God because we have reason. But that is what, that is what makes us most like God. Right. Uh, you know, that was really powerful to me because I felt like I was coming from something that had said, no, that's not a good thing in certain cases, right? That's a thing you need to shut off. Whereas I think Catholicism is really like, no, that's a thing that you, you turn on. And it's a way for us to really experience communion with God, you know, in that sense, maybe I, I resonate with, with Dominican spirituality that, uh, that, that studying, you know, questions like that is, I mean, you'll find no argument from me. The Dominicans are my favorite. Yeah. I love them. I've had a ton of Dominicans from the Eastern province on this show. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then alongside of that, I just had this sense that's hard to describe of, you know, Mormonism is not Trinitarian. They reject the doctrine of the Trinity. And so that was very foreign to me, but it was very obvious, very obvious that while the the technical language of Trinitarianism takes, you know, centuries to develop. Yeah. The, the notion that the Father is God and that Jesus is God also, but that there's only one God is is was also to, coming from somebody who is like not trinitarian reading the early fathers you're just like holy cow they yeah. also you know it was not hard for me to accept that the the doctrine of the trinity represents the historic christian belief and but you know from from that time on you know like i said sort of initially through bishop Barron's uh work you know, there's just a growing sense of getting to know God, because this God that I'm being introduced to via Catholicism is very different um, from the God that I had in, envisaged, that I had grown up believing in, in a sense. And Jesus was very different than than the person that I had held in my mind as Jesus. Uh, and, you know, that that was really powerful and impactful to me and you know through the church's liturgy just you know just blew me away uh the mystery of of christian liturgy uh coming to understand or 
or just to know like that there is a thing called, I'm not an Eastern Catholic. I, I was baptized Latin, right? Uh, but I, I definitely explored Eastern Catholicism early on and um, was very, you know, drawn to a lot of aspects of Eastern Catholicism. But I had never heard of such a thing. I didn't, didn't know that, yeah, that was yeah. a thing, you know. We, we attend the Byzantine Divine Liturgy yeah. regularly. So, yeah. It's beautiful, it. you know, beautiful. So, uh, you know, those things kind of pushed me along to where I eventually, you know, um, I went to a mass, experienced the liturgy. Uh, and I was, you know, I'd been studying, I think, for something like a year, give or take, on my own before mm-hmm. I ever went to a mass and went to mass for a few months before I ever talked to the priest and introduced myself. And and then once I did, I said, you know, I, th- I think I want to become Catholic and, you know, went from there. Now, we've already talked about this 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 feeling of certitude that you had as a Mormon and that Mormons really emphasize when you went to mass for the first time or even in any, Mm -hmm. any, any successive time, did you have a similar experience? And if so, did you then, did you sort of have to check yourself and be like, wait a minute, I know that this feeling is not everything. This feeling, this feeling, uh, cannot tell me what is true. You know what I mean? Yeah. The first time, no. Um, have I had, if I become emotional during the liturgy, yes. Um, you know, the first time, I think that first, uh, the first time I heard the Scola chant, Veni, Veni, Emmanuel during Advent just rocked my world. <laughs> I was alone, right? I'm, I'm, I don't have my family with me. I'm, you know, the biggest struggle for me, most of my discussions with the priest were not doctrinal in nature they were pastoral in nature how am i supposed yeah. to deal with the fact that i'm the father of a family and my wife and my yeah, children are all that's tough yes so how hard. do i deal with this yeah. <clears throat> but i i just never i was just not thinking at all that that you know i was praying a lot and praying for god to help me and to the blessed mother to help me understand how to know if this is the right thing to do, but not looking and not expecting some kind of manifestation because that's just not the way Catholicism works. It's an interesting thing when you talk to a lot of Mormons, they will be under the impression that this is how everyone works, that like everyone believes their religion is true because they've had some kind of internal experience. And I do think that there's some truth to that, especially in American churches and there are lots of evangelical circles that are like that, right? That um, yes, that that your faith is tied to this emotive experience. But I just, you know, I'm probably I, I don't pay attention to my feelings and emotions to a fault. Still, as a reactive position, yeah. and yeah, sure, yeah, it was just not the way. You know, I was looking at Catholicism to decide whether I thought it was true. I honestly just sat down and said. I'm looking at everything and do I believe this is true? Is is there enough here for me to to assent uh to believe it's true and to assent to the things that I obviously don't know because I have to assent to the entirety of the Catholic faith uh in order to be a Catholic and you know you you just you reach that level and I don't know how to there's nothing like extraordinary no like wham bam moment or anything like that it's simply a matter of um 
you know, I, I read my way into the church and, and maybe my faith is over intellectualized. Uh, I will accept that criticism, but um, that's, you know, really how I came in that. And when, when I, yeah. when I have become emotional, um, I think I tell a, a vignette in the book about during Bishop Barron's, one of his episodes, um, he has an episode where he shows the Pieta, Michelangelo's Pieta. And I became really emotional when I saw mm-hmm. it, but I had this sense of like, I'm not, I'm not emotional because it's Jesus or I'm not, I'm, and I'm not emotional because it's the blessed mother crying over her son. You know, I'm not, I'm emotional because this is beautiful. I'm looking at something that is objectively beautiful. Like there's not, it just, it is beautiful. And that points me to something beyond, right? The, that uh, the existence of objective beauty points us to something beyond uh, material reality. And, and I think, you know, that, that was, it was more, it's more an indication, you know, yeah, we cry at things, we get moved by things and, and we should think about why that is. And I thought about why, why am I crying at this? And, and the answer is it's beautiful. There's something very beautiful about this. And to think more about the question of beauty led me back into this idea of, uh, you know, that there, that, that God, um, as the Catholic church tells me he exists, exists this, this idea in Augustine that, yeah. you know, our hearts are restless until they rest in God, that it, it points to something beyond material Absolutely. reality. We could talk for hours about yes. that idea alone. I'm, I'm firmly convinced that our world suffers from a severe deficit of beauty. Yeah. And that deficit of beauty contributes to uh, a whole host of problems, primarily uh, our lack of belief in God, and then a whole host of others besides. But I, yeah. I think I'm glad that you uh, I'm glad that you had that encounter with the the via pulchritudinous uh, through the work of Bishop Barron. I hear he he talks about that a lot. But um, I'm I'm a strong supporter of the uh, strong, strong believer in the idea that we need more people creating beautiful art because it does point us to the transcendent points us to some objective reality beyond ourselves. Going back to this idea of the postmodern sort of self-referential idea of truth, beauty shows us that's actually not the case, right? There is an objective, uh, there's an objective thing beyond us. Um, and beauty points us to that. So I think it's great. We're, we're about out of time, Jeremy, but I noticed you have a lot of, uh, I don't think it's come up yet tonight. I haven't heard you say his name, but you, you have a lot of sentences dedicated, uh, to St. Thomas More, and you found this this man as a compelling figure even in your law school days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to ask, he, he's my confirmation saint. I have to ask, is he your confirmation saint yes, as well? Yes, he is. He is. Uh, nice. I, I, I think right. St. Thomas More uh, is somebody that I have a sense is, has been involved in my life for a long time. And I've always been very compelled by his figure, more so, you know, studying who he kind of really is unless the Paul Schofield rendition uh, in a man for all seasons. Although I love that movie. It's a wonderful movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I have a strong devotion to uh, Thomas More as a, as a lawyer, you know, he's a patron saint of lawyers and statesmen. And uh, uh, I yep. ask for his intercession. Very devoted father as well. Uh, yes. Very devoted father, um, you know, and, and uh, an ideal saint, um, for, for a lay 
man, right? Um, that he he was called the vocation of marriage and and was you know a really good example in that. And uh, so yes, I I have a, a very strong devotion to him, um, and uh, have have just had that that sense for some for some time. But yeah, he's he's my confirmation saint. I love it. Well, we're confirmation saint brothers then. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me today on the show. Absolutely. Really appreciate you taking the time to share your journey. Uh, doubly appreciate you writing this book because I think this is going to be a great resource for for people like yourselves who are like, like yourself who are um, Mormon, perhaps considering uh, becoming ex Mormon. Um, questioning is this true? Uh, and I think your memoir really goes far in helping people sort of see see a way uh, out of that. And then you spend uh, spend a good amount of time also sort of defending the truth of Christianity and and um, especially through the lens of the Apostolic Fathers. So, highly recommend this book to all of my listeners from the Sas- from the from the Susquehanna to the Tiber, a memoir of conversion from Mormonism to the Roman Catholic Church by Jeremy Christensen. Jeremy, thanks so much for uh, joining me once again. To my listeners, if you have questions for Jeremy, I would be happy to uh, to pass them along. Uh, so send me a note, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalpodcast.com. And thanks for listening. Until next time, God bless you. Thank you, Zach.